So when we picked Thessalonians as the book we wanted to study, as the next set of books we wanted to study, we picked it because we really wanted to kind of get a chance to look into some end time stuff. We thought that was a, an intriguing topic, one that we hadn't really addressed much here yet, and we wanted to get to take some time to do that. And so when we pick these books, hopefully several months in advance, um, we all sit down in an elder and we kind of break out who's going to talk about which sections. Like, really, we just kind of go by the calendar. Like, we're going to break here, we're going to break here, we're going to break here. Uh, Daniel's going to preach this many weeks, I'm going to preach this many weeks, that sort of thing. Uh, so, like, two weeks ago, Daniel sends me a text and said, so it turns out that when I stop preaching and you start preaching is when all of the end time stuff starts. And by the time you're done, that's when all of the end time stuff ends. So Daniel picked the end time stuff and he's not going to get to preach through any of it, which is just kind of ironic. Oh, was it dad? Okay. Well, yeah. But so, so you're stuck with what I, what I'm able to, to garner and, and pull in and take in. Um, so, so here we go. This is it. Ready? Seminary word for the next, like, like five weeks. Okay? Perusia. You can say that. Perusia. If you say it with a little perusia, it'll probably feel a little bit better. Sounds like gibberish. It's actually a Greek word, uh, which means arrival. And typically refers to the coming of Jesus at the end of everything. Okay? Uh, it's important that we're using the word parousia because Paul is going to use this word as kind of a contrast to the phrase the day of the Lord, which if you've been here on Sunday nights and we've been reading through a lot of prophecy lately, the day of the Lord is a day that gets mentioned all the time that comes at the end when Christ returns. But there are a lot of connotations uh, to the day of the Lord. When you hear me say the phrase the day of the Lord, what is it that you think of? The end times, but wrath, destruction, God, God, God justly eliminating sin from the world. And, and, and we should think of that because that is going to happen. And we are going to talk about that in the next couple of weeks. But Paul also uses this word parousia to talk about the arrival of Christ as a joyful occasion, as something that we should be happy about, something that we should be rejoicing in. Um, and we're going to talk about why he kind of sets these apart in contrast, because he's trying to paint two very different pictures, but, but for those of us who are in Christ, he really wants us to get a clear picture of how exciting and how joyful and how positive the return of Christ is going to be. It's not just this wrathful day of the Lord where he's going to come in and kind of lay waste to everybody. It's not that. It's Christ coming back to be with his church. It's Christ coming back to, to fulfill that promise that he said that I will, I will give you life and we will be together forever and ever and ever. So last week when Daniel was preaching, Paul was really focusing, um, was really concerned that believers live in a Christ-like sense. Like he was really concerned about the church's holiness. I want you to live a certain way so that you will be perceived well by those who are outside of the church, right? I don't want you to look like the people that you're living amongst. I want you to stand out. Something is different about you. You have, you have Christ and that has changed you. That has made you look very different. And, and this week, he's still concerned with our Christ-likeness. So I don't want you to read these verses. And as we get into uh, all of this kind of where we're going in the future talk, and we're going to talk about that, but I want us to focus on what Paul's 
emphasis was. Because his main concern is not that we know all the intricate details about what's going to happen in the future. That's the first thing that I want us to get. It's not about what's going to happen. Why Paul is bringing this up is because he wants us to live like people who believe the gospel, knowing what's coming for us. So he's still concerned with our Christ-likeness. He just wants to make sure that we know what's coming and that our life reflects that we trust that God is going to be there for us eternally, essentially. That's, he, wants us to, he wants our lives to balance with the knowledge of what the gospel means to us. So, so as we're reading this, don't just sit here and, and, and a couple months, well, it's not been that long, about a month ago, we were reading in Revelation on Sunday nights. And there was a whole lot that you could sit there and say, well, let's figure out what all of these details mean. And we're going to do a little of that. But our main focus ended up being, let's not be concerned about what all of these details are absolutely reflecting. But let's instead see, what do these things, how do these things affect the way that we should be living? What does this knowledge kind of inform us to do? What does it encourage us to do? How does it encourage us to live? Uh, and I have some really specific ideas by the end of this today that I really hope that we can kind of lock in and know and love and be like. So go ahead and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I'll give you a second to get there. Um, we're going to read verses 13 through 18 today. I didn't look up. I didn't look up what page number it is. But if you don't have a Bible, we have those back in the back. Somebody can help you find it. <laughs> 641. It's page 641 if you're using one of those Bibles from the back. Okay. Here we go. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Verse 13, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope, who, who, mm. grieve as others do who have no hope. All right, we're one verse in and I'm already stumbling. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Okay. So, the stuff that I was studying is like, we don't really know why Paul made this quick jump in subject matter. Because last week we were talking about holiness. And we were talking about things that we should or should not do. Things that should make us look more and more like Christ. And all of a sudden, he jumps into this discussion about when Christ comes back and, and people being brought back to life. How did, how did he make that jump? Uh, maybe, maybe it's just that, because as Daniel talked about, uh, Paul had sent Timothy over to Thessalonica to kind of check on how the church was doing, and Timothy had come back and brought a report to Paul. Maybe Timothy just came back with a list of questions, like, here are the things that they're not sure about. Could you kind of address these things to them? Or here are the things that I'm pretty concerned that they might have misunderstood about the things we taught them. Perhaps it's some of that. But I think one of the things that makes me understand Paul's motivation for addressing this subject here is these people were starting to face the consequences of following Christ, right? We've talked about this. They're starting to have some pushback in the city. 
they're starting to face some level of persecution. Who knows? Maybe some of them have even started being martyred for their faith. And they've, they've accepted this truth that Paul has brought to them. They've begun following Christ. They've begun living life as the church. They've, they've, they've started to live a life that stands out as different among the people that they're living with. And there's been noticeable pushback, right? Paul was run out of the city overnight because the city was so upset with what Paul had been teaching. So, so now I'm thinking that Paul sees their concern over the fact that some of their brothers and sisters have died. And they're like, what does this mean? Because they live in a culture, in, in, in their culture, death was viewed as basically the end. Like, like death equals no more hope. It was, a, it was this perception that basically you try to live, as, and it's probably a perception that we try to live with today. We try to live as long as we can. We keep people alive as long as we can. Because after this, there's nothing. There's no more hope. That's the end of their existence. This is the only existence they're going to get. And so these people were seeing their brothers and sisters dying for whatever reason, and they're concerned. They're like, we've been raised in this culture that tells us that they're dead. There's no more hope for them. Does that mean that they don't get Christ anymore because they died before he came back? Like, is he just coming back for those of us who have lived long enough to see his return? Because if that's the case, I mean, here we are 2,000 years later. That, that's really sad for the last 2,000 years of people, right? So, so there's probably some real concern that, that, that they have in their mind. All these people that are dying are dying without hope. They have no hope. They're dead. They're, there's nothing more for them. They don't get Christ now. They've lost that opportunity. Um, I kept thinking about this idea of them having no hope or losing hope. And then I work on the website at ETSU. And we've been kind of redoing the scholarship website. Well, actually, I've been working on another project. Daniel's been working on the scholarship website a little bit. So he's probably seen the phrase, don't lose hope a whole lot lately. Which is this, this tagline that they've used for the Hope Scholarship. Um, Many of you will have experienced the Hope Scholarship. Some of you will have lost, maybe even lost, regained, lost, regained to have lost again the Hope Scholarship because, because they have all these rules about GPA and all the stuff that you have to keep. But, they're, but they're, their big tagline for that is don't lose hope. Now, they're trying to say don't lose your Hope Scholarship. Do the things you have to do. But, but I found it interesting that they, they're using this kind of language. Like what's going to propel you forward in your education is this idea of hope. Have hope. Know that there's something better for you coming. Don't just give up on everything. Don't just think, at the end of this, there is nothing. There is just this dead nothingness, this, this, this wasted eternity beyond this time. So they've, they've given it this name. This, this, you have hope. You have something in the future. And that's, that's not something that the Thessalonians were used to thinking about beyond this life that they knew. So I really think that Paul is trying to address some people that you know and love have died. What is it that the church is supposed to do? What is, what is a believer's reaction supposed to be in the face of death? In the face of what you would think is the end? So verse 13, Paul's really going to kind of introduce the subject that he's talking about. And then, yeah, there's a lot of end time stuff in here. But, but his focus really seems to be how should a believer grieve? Right? What, what should be our reaction in the face of death? So let's read verse 13 again. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. So, so Paul's introducing this idea. 
I want you to understand that he's kind of, again, coming at this from a pastoral mindset. I am your pastor. It is my responsibility that you know the things that are important. So, so I don't want you to not understand this. I don't want you to miss this point about those who are asleep. Asleep being dead, right? That you may not grieve as others, who, as others do who have no hope. That is a really confusing sentence to read, the way that's written in the ESV. It's probably easier than something else. So he's really trying to talk about how the church should grieve. He doesn't tell the church not to grieve, um, you know, He just says, don't grieve like those who have no hope. Don't grieve like those who aren't in Christ. Don't grieve like those who aren't a part of the church. Don't, and I think think this is an important important point for us. This doesn't mean we're supposed to become these cold and calloused people who hide behind the shield of our theology, knowing that God God is sovereign, God is in control, God is working everything out, so that we don't have to show emotion. I am really bad about that. I don't show emotion. If I had a puppy, I'm going to make this really sad. (laughs) If I had a puppy, I won't make it as sad. And someone kicked my puppy. I'll just leave it at kicked. I was going to use use a a semi-truck, but I'm going to use a kick instead. If I had a puppy and somebody kicked my puppy... Yeah, I'd probably get a little upset or whatever, but I wouldn't be, like, hurt, sad over my puppy. Like, I'm just not that person. If my, if my puppy died, I would not be the person who cried at the death of my puppy. Now, when I was a kid, maybe. But now, now, I'm, I'm heartless now. And it's really easy for us to think, God is sovereign, God has seen fit to take my puppy from me at this time. God, God, God predetermined from the foundation of the earth that he was going to take my puppy from me at this time. And so now I can, accept, I can accept and give God glory for the fact that my puppy is no longer with me because God has seen fit to work this out according to his divine will that he predestined from the ages and ages past. Right? And I can hide behind that and I can have no emotion. Paul's not saying have no emotion over the death of your brothers and sisters. He's not saying that you should say, well, God took them. Good for them. They're with him. We're good. It's not like you say, hey, they're gone. Better for them. He's not saying just be happy when your friends die. Right? Which, which is the kind of extreme interpretation of where some theology could lead you. Like, this is exactly what God had in mind. I'm not sad. He's saying it's okay to miss these people. I mean, we've even seen that Paul desperately misses this church. Right? Because he was taken away from them prematurely. And he keeps saying, I want to come back. I want to be with you. My heart aches to be with you. In Romans, he says, my heart aches to come get to know you guys. I desire so much to see you guys face to face. He was grieving the separation from his brothers and sisters. And I don't think that we should overlook the fact that he's telling us there is a way to grieve. You should grieve. You should miss your brothers and sisters. It's okay. But... We don't grieve like everyone else. When they grieve, they're grieving because they might never see those people again. They've lost someone forever. They have no hope of being together with that person again. But, that's what, and that's where he transitions. But we don't want you to be like that. We want you to understand that there is a hope for us. There is a hope for us being together again in the future. 
So yeah, grieve over their death. Grieve over your separation. Miss them because you will not be together for a long time. But don't grieve as though that's a period, right? Um, in a, they're in a culture where like death is like a period. And for us, it's kind of like dot, dot, dot. Like, like there's more to come. I cheat and use dot, dot, dot a lot. Because like, I don't like to say things definitively, especially in texts. Um, so like I overuse dot, dot, dot. Like I'm sure there's more that I could say. But I'm not going to right now. Right? But that's, but that's the kind of mindset that he's suggesting that we should have over the death of brothers and sisters in Christ specifically. Is that there's more. There's more for them. There's more for us. We'll be together again. So we're sad right now. But there is hope that we will be reunited again in the future. So we can't have this. He's, set, he's telling the people you can't have this hopeless view that you will never be together again. This hope that, that, this, that relationships are permanently severed. That's the idea. Like, like our relationships are not permanently broken when a believer dies. Specifically when believers. And that's why he set that apart from those who are in the church and who, those who are outside of the church. So verse 14. So we know how to grieve. Now we've got to know why do we have this hope. Verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So Paul's defense for the continued life of a believer beyond death is the fact that Christ also died and was raised again. He was dead and now is alive and continues to live forever. His, he's trying to say, we believe in a God who conquers death. We believe in a God who is more powerful than death itself. And so that hope that he showed us, he revealed eternal life to us essentially by the fact that he was not left in the tomb. He got up and he walked around and he talked with people and then he went to be with God. The fact that he is alive now, the fact that at this time, there are probably still people who have witnessed this. We, we went back on Easter. We were reading about this when he, in his letter to the Corinthians. He's like, go talk to somebody that saw Jesus. Because he saw a bunch of people while he was alive again. Go talk to those people. They'll tell you he's alive. So, so the hope, the knowledge of a resurrected Jesus is what gives us the hope to not see death as an end. But to see death as perhaps a transition. So we don't have to grieve the same way that people who don't know Jesus. They don't have hope because they don't know Jesus. They don't know resurrection. They don't know new life. They don't know life beyond death. But Jesus modeled that for us. We're, we are in Christ are made to look more and more like him. Right? That's kind of what we were talking about last week. We want to look more and more like Jesus in the way that our lives reflect his holiness. So... so why would that not translate through any aspect of his life? Just like he was dead and is alive, so also will those who are in Christ, those who know him, those who love him, those who follow him, will also know death that then leads to life. Death will not be the end. This is my favorite quote. This is my favorite quote from one of the commentaries that I read. We have a hope in what God will do grounded in what he has already done. 
Our, our, our hope for eternal life, our hope for life beyond death, is rooted in the fact that Christ has already shown us how this works. Christ has already experienced death, and he continued to go beyond that. There was more for him after that. Death is a transition into just a different, better existence. It's not, it's not an end. It's not that we cease to be. So what's this going to look like? What is this going to look like? We're going to read 15 through 17 again. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Okay, so Paul doesn't just leave him hanging, say, you have hope, Jesus is alive, don't worry about it. Like, that's not his response. He's, it's not that he says, I'm not going to tell you anymore. He says, I'm going to give you a little bit of detail. He doesn't obviously give them every single detail, which is why when we get to verse 17 here in a minute, I'm going to be like, there's a bunch of ways that we could, we could say this is going to play out. Um, but he doesn't just leave them hanging, um, because... He's addressing a concern that they have. So he's trying to say, I want to give you enough information so that you can move on, that you don't become paralyzed by this fear of death, this fear of severed relationships forever and ever. I want to give you a good picture of hope. And yeah, I can, and he points him to Jesus. And, and honestly, he could stop it. Jesus is alive, so that's good, that ought to be good enough. And it is. But... But he's kind enough to them to say, well, I'm going to go a little further. I'm going to give you a little bit of detail about how this is going to work. And the first thing that he really wants to point out is that those of us, and I'm going to use us because we are all currently alive. Yes? Good? Okay. Those of us, because I can't use them because they're not all alive anymore. So those of us, we're not going to beat the people who have died, the Christians who have died before us. We're not going to beat them into heaven, which is kind of the idea that they had is like, when Christ comes back, we'll be there, but everybody that's dead, what's going to happen with them? Right? He's saying, he's saying you guys aren't going to beat them. In fact, we're all going to get there at the same time. We're all going to end up in heaven at the same time. Um, so they've been concerned over this. He said, I'm going to give you a little bit of detail to kind of help kind of soothe your concerns so that you'll be ready to go. So we won't beat those who have died into Christ's presence. Um, Bodily, Let me put it that way. Bodily. We won't like physically get there first. They're going to be there physically with us at the same time. And I'll read about that again in just a second. Um, but I do think we can say when a believer dies, their consciousness in some way is with Christ. I mean, we saw that um, thanks to Jesus' conversation with a thief on the cross, right? He's like, in just a few minutes, you're going to be with me in paradise. Like we're going to be together conscious of where we are right and he wasn't and that was not in a bodily form we know that because his body was still here right they, they put his body somewhere his physical body was there though christ his spirit was not in his body at the time so i'm i'm not trying to say that you kind of die and you're just kind of stuck until this end times so i'm not saying that because obviously there is some consciousness there i don't know i don't know exactly how that works i don't know exactly where we go that's not what we're talking about 
But what he says is, physically, we will all physically go to be with Christ together in our bodily form at the same time. There's no advantage to continuing to live, to to be one of the ones who's alive when Christ comes back, which is what their concern was. They were like, what about these guys who are dead? He's saying, don't worry about that. You'll all be there together. Once everybody is back together in our physical bodies, when Christ returns, we all get to be in his presence together at the same time. No advantage is given to anybody over the other. All right, so here we go. Here's here's the one, here's the verse in this section that I think most people could differ over how to read this. Verse 17. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Okay. So, what is the event that is being described in verse 17 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4? Second coming. What do we call that usually? The rapture. Right. Where do we get that word? Out of the Bible. Thank you. When when we say the rapture, does everybody get the same idea in mind? What what idea do you get? Like if I was to say the rapture is going to happen right now. Which it didn't. Okay. (laughs) We get to finish. Wouldn't that have been crazy? (laughs) What's that gonna what 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 do you what what picture do you get for this room? What happens in this room? We disappear. Some of you would say all of our clothes are left lying exactly pristinely where they were, right? Right. That's the picture we get because that's the picture that we've been shown all of our lives growing up. Um, so here's the thing. This event, the rapture. This this being caught up with the Lord in the air. There are two ways you can interpret this. Either this is the, here's that word again, the parousia, the coming of Jesus. Or these are two events that happen separately. Like, Like we get caught up together and then somewhere else Jesus comes back. That's kind of the view that I was raised to believe. Like, like he kind of comes back sort of. Like he comes back, you know, halfway picks us up, and then takes us to heaven where we hang out for, depending on your reading of the Bible, somewhere between three and a half and seven years. The kids are scared of the rapture this morning. (laughs) They're scared it's going to happen. Somewhere between three and a half and seven years, and then we all come back together at the end of that, and that's the real coming of Christ. That's the parousia. That's the day of the Lord at the end of that time. But we've been gone for a while there, so that's one way you can read it. The other way you can read it is that all of these are the same event. Christ returns, we are with him, and then he rules and reigns over the earth forever. That is the end of everything. And over the course of the next few weeks, that's the position that I'm going to kind of talk from. Because I don't read I don't read two I don't read two comings. I read Christ comes back. And he's in charge. That that's kind of how I read it. So so where do we get the word rapture? Because when we get this, when I, when I say the word rapture, we all have, like I said, we have the same idea where we all get kind of sucked up in the air, and we go up in heaven, and we hang out with Jesus for a while before he comes back, creates a whole new earth, and we live on this whole new earth, right? So where do we get this idea? 
The Greek word here for, and that's in verse 17, where he says, uh, caught up together, um, is the word harpazo, which is like to seize or to snatch. Right? Uh, in the Latin translation, that's the word rapire. That's a guess on the pronunciation. But that's where we get the word rapture. And so, when we hear the word rapture, we tend to immediately think taken up into the air, picked up, floating around, right? The, uh, I think I wrote in my notes something about the church getting their fly on, right? Where we're just kind of all up there hovering. And that word isn't really talking about us being taken up and just hanging up in the air. It's more trying to emphasize the suddenness of the moment. And it's important that we understand that he's emphasizing the suddenness of the moment, especially for next week, because he's going to talk a lot about the suddenness of Christ's return and how that should affect us, the knowledge that it's going to happen quickly. What he's trying to emphasize is that when Christ comes back, all of this is going to happen very quickly and it's going to be very decisively taking place. It's not going to be this long, drawn-out kind of thing where like, you know, beams of light shine down on us and we and we lift our hands to the heavens and then we we're slowly elevated up, right? It's not that. It, it, it's a bigger de- I mean, listen to the language that he's using in verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. Right? It's going to be a big deal moment. Boom, done. Like it's happening. He's taking us We're with him. So the emphasis isn't necessarily on we're we're floating up in the air. We're going to talk about what that can mean here in just a second. The emphasis is we're immediately snatched. We're taken into the presence of Christ right then. When it happens, when Christ comes back, we're with him and that's it. We're with him forever. So where are we taken? When he says we're taken... He says, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. When you read it that way, you think we're flying, right? We're hovering in the air. But I think, I think the emphasis is not on us flying around in the sky as much as us being in the presence of God. Think back to the description of clouds, particularly in the Old Testament. When you see a cloud, what is that usually meant to represent? The presence of God. I'll give you a couple of examples. Right? Wandering in the desert, they were, they were guided by a pillar of cloud. At Mount Sinai, God's presence covered the whole top of the mountain in a cloud. Inside the Holy of Holies, it said that the Lord descended in a cloud. When Jesus was transfigured, right? The the disciples who were there were surrounded by a cloud, and then the voice of the Lord spoke out of the cloud. Even at the ascension, when it says Jesus was lifted up from them, it says he was hidden by the clouds. He He was taken to be in the presence of God. So I don't want us to sit here and say, it has to be that we're standing here, then all of a sudden we're up there. Because what if it's not a cloudy day? Right? Maybe he brings clouds, but I, think the, but I think the point that he's trying to make here is, I want you to recognize that you're going to be immediately in the presence of God. There's no longer going to be this, this separation between you and God, your creator. Like you're going to be taken from this existence and 
boom, you get to be with Jesus. You're in his presence. You are with him immediately. That, I think, is the emphasis that he's trying to make. It also says that we meet the Lord in the air. So, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2. I'm just going to go ahead and read it. It's really quick. It calls Satan the prince of the power of the air. The air is kind of this, this concept that was common in this culture to think of. That's where the demons are. The demons have control over the air. They're, they are in the air. They are in that kind of, imagine, not imaginary, but kind of unseen spiritual area of creation. So maybe Paul's not only trying to say you're going to immediately be in the presence of God, but you're going to be in the presence of God, and it's going to further prove that he is absolutely victorious over every enemy that he's faced. Like you're going to be in his presence, but that presence is going to be on Satan's territory, right? He is taking that back for himself. That seems to be, be the purpose of Paul using that language. And, and, and the use of this kind of language is very, I mean, he's using very apocalyptic sounding language so that people would recognize what do these metaphors tend to be referring to. That seems to be his emphasis. I want you to get in mind that you're going to be in the presence of God immediately in a realm that he has conquered all of his enemies, everything that is fought against him. That seems to be what his true emphasis is. So Paul is emphasizing Jesus' complete victory over all of his enemies. So is the point of this verse to show us a clear picture of like a sequence or a location? Because there are a lot of people that get really locked in on the sequence and the location when they read this. And they say, that's the whole point of us Getting, getting this idea together. Like, we want to read this so that we can understand the sequence of the location that all this is taking place. God wants us to know exactly how it is that he's going to come back and where we're going to go when that happens. And I don't think that's the point because that's not where we started. We started with, I don't want you guys to be concerned about the fact that people are dying and, and you think they have no more hope. His emphasis is, I want you to understand that our hope comes at the end. We get to be with Christ forever and he is king victorious over all sin and death and everything that he has fought against. Or everything that has fought against him. The point is that to be in Christ, dead or alive right now, is to have the hope that accompanies that knowing this physical life isn't everything. That there is more for us in the end. That it doesn't just stop here. We get to keep going. So... What do we do with this? Thank you, Paul. You've given us a verse. Verse 18. Therefore, knowing that all of this is true, that Christ is alive, he has shown us what it looks like to overcome death, that he's going to come back and take us into his presence forever, that he is completely victorious over all of his enemies. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Don't be down. Don't be worried. Don't be concerned. Remind each other of the truth of this gospel. And be encouraged by it. Don't, don't just be like, yeah, I mean, there's more after this. Yeah. No. Say no. Be excited about this truth. Be overwhelmed by the fact that, that we serve a risen Lord who is going to continue to bring us into his presence for all eternity. Like, like that same Jesus that we were reading about. A couple weeks ago on Sunday night, we were reading about the creation. That, that, that 
that was there as, as creation was made, as, as, as God spoke everything into his, that God is the God whose presence we're getting pulled into right then. We get to be with him. So he's saying, you should be encouraging one another. So he's giving, yeah, he's giving this really specific kind of theological teaching about, about where we go after we die and, and how all of this is going to play out by the time Christ returns. But his true focus is that we would live rightly with this knowledge. That this knowledge wouldn't just be something that, oh, I know that. Yeah, I know about the end times. I know about what's going to happen with me in the end. That can't be the end. First, he wants us to be encouraged by it. We should be excited by the idea of a risen Savior and the hope of eternal life with him. That's point one. That's idea one. Number one, that should excite us. And I honestly... We, we talk about this in our elder meetings sometimes. We're gonna, we, this is one of the things that I think we as a church could improve on. Like, we're really, okay, so I'm going to use music as the example because I'm really passionate about music. We're really good at worshiping to slow songs here. Right? If I, if we were playing with everything on the CD before. Like, if we played with everything or, or just pick, pick your power ballad, right? Pick your church power ballad. That love song to Jesus that has lots of really simple O's and stuff to sing. We'll get into that, right? We're cool, passionately singing the slow stuff. But say we play in tenderness. Say we play something celebratory. Just something excited. Loud. What do we tend to do? Or just stand there. Except Ben. Except Ben. If we play Sweetness of Freedom... Every time we play Sweetness of Freedom and Ben's back there running the media shout, y'all, y'all are watching us, but I'm watching y'all when I'm singing. And Ben is the only one. Okay, Ben is trying to keep up with the lyrics, but Ben is also seriously like, like jumping around and all this back there. But what Paul is saying is that's what should be normal. Like we should be encouraged by this. We should be excited about this. We should be happy about this. And I think that's an area that we can all grow in a little bit. Not to just be satisfied in who Jesus is. We use that word a lot. And I use that word a lot. I want us to be satisfied in who Jesus is. But I also want us to be excited. I was going to use the word enthused, but then that sounded really old. Enthused is an old word. I don't know. So is Perusia. So Thank you. But I feel smarter using Perusia than I do using enthused. I don't know. Um, pick your word that describes a, an emotional reaction to something that's exciting. You know, I am much more likely, this is, this is a knock on me, I am much more likely to do this, woo, at an ETSU basketball game when we hit a three-pointer, right? I'm much more likely to do that than to go, woo, at any point during any of the fast songs. I don't know if it's just because we're small, I don't know what it is. But, but man, if we, if we knew the importance of what it was that Jesus did for us, we would be not just, not just satisfied to sit back and be, be you know, calm and contemplative over that truth. But at the same time, it would excite us. It would excite us. I want us to be excited by the truth that we have Jesus, not just now, but we have him forever. I want that to be exciting for us. So we should be excited by the idea of a risen Savior. We should encourage one another in the same truth. So if you have to elbow your buddy during a fast song and tell them you're not celebrating enough, 
you are more than welcome to. In fact, that's exactly what Paul's telling you to do. If somebody is not encouraged enough by this, if somebody is down, if somebody is just not really expressing their overwhelmed feeling of the gospel. Yeah, like, like if they're not, if it's like, do you believe this? Then why are you like this? In tenderness, he sought me. Oh, we're clapping. Right? That's, we don't sing those lyrics sad. They're not sad things that we sing. The truth that we believe, the things that we read in here are not just kind of eh, things. They are things that we ought to be excited about. And they are things that we ought to be encouraging each other to be excited about as well. Seriously. Like, I'm just going to sit there and let you think about that. Like, like for real, I would love it if we would encourage each other to be excited about Jesus. That seems so simple. Like, that seems like that's what we ought to be doing all the time. But we stop with, well, you came. I'm so glad you're here. No, you're here. Now let's be excited about this. Let's be excited about it in here. And we should be excited about it outside of here. We should live lives that reflect the knowledge to those who don't have hope. He's saying, you grieve with a hope. He's saying, the people that don't have hope ought to see the way you grieve. And then the way that you are encouraged by the knowledge of eternal life with Jesus. As something to be desired. Like, somebody is absolutely wrecked over the fact that they've lost someone. And maybe, you've lost, maybe, maybe you both have lost the same person. But they see, oh... They're reacting to this differently. They have something more to hope in, in that. They ought to, those who don't have hope ought to be able to see hope in us. We ought not squelch our hope when we are not here or not around other believers. We ought to live lives that say, I believe this. I have hope. I am excited about what Jesus is doing and I'm excited that I get to be with him forever. We shouldn't bring down the room. We should, in fact, be excited about this no matter where we are, no matter what the circumstance may be, so that people see Christ in us and desire to have a hope like that in their lives. Because they've been described as those without hope. If you got a call from the scholarship office and they said, you have lost your hope scholarship, you have no more hope, you're going to go... Right? That's how people who are, out of, who are not in Christ feel. They do not have hope. They walk around in a perpetual state of... But we don't feel that way. And we live that way in front of them so that they desire to have that same hope that we have. So we come in here on Tuesday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday nights try to keep this building open so people come in. This last Wednesday... Um, Bo was in here. Hadn't seen him. In, I hadn't seen him in weeks. Um, he's one of the guys that's homeless. He lives under the bridge over by the medical center, right? Yeah. Um, but he comes down here and, you know, we were talking. Because if, if you've ever been here on a night when Bo comes in, Bo loves to talk. Loves to talk. The one that had the dog. We'll talk about that later. So, Bo comes in, sits down. I uh, got him a Mountain Dew, some macaroni and cheese, you know, just something. So he's sitting there eating, and we're talking. And he was talking about how he doesn't walk all the way downtown anymore because those people are just depressing to him. 
right? Okay, so I've told you what the situation is for this guy. He lives under a bridge by the medical center. That, that's where he lives. And he was talking about how when he, go, he goes downtown, those people bring him down because they have no hope. Those are the words he said. It's like they have given up. He said, I have a friend, literally, who just last week lost all hope and gave up and OD'd. He's like, happens all the time. It's just depressing going down there and talking to those people that are homeless down there. He's like, me? And if you, if you ever talk to Bo, he'll say this at least four times. I mean, I'm, I'm a blessed man. I'm a blessed man. I don't know how real that is. I, I hope, I pray for Bo that that is really where he is. But that's the kind of contrast that we're looking for. Who in the, we want to be people who in the midst of whatever we're facing, however bad our lives may be, we don't, we don't lose hope. He's talking about how utterly hopeless those people are. They're, like, they're not even trying anymore. They're not even trying to improve their lives anymore. They're just like, I'm going to stay homeless for a while and maybe I'll just go ahead and die. That is their mindset. But that should not be our mindset. That is not our mindset if we are in Christ. And that is why we who are in Christ live as though we have hope so that when people who don't have that hope see it, they can say, I want hope. So, when I pray, I'm going to pray that we would be excited about the fact that Christ is going to return and we get to be with him right then and there forever. And that we'd be excited by that idea. So much so that it would, it would not just last while we're in this building or not just last while we're with people who believe the same things that we do, but that we would affect the world around us with the level of excitement that we have and the hope that is Jesus. So let's pray.